Welcome to the Wizard Brew Podcast. I'm Carl Jolm. And I'm Daniel Nyheis. So before we get into the main topic for today, we want to talk about a tournament that uh, Danny and I and a good friend of ours uh, went to over this past weekend. Uh, in our area, there was a 3v3 team tournament, and it was a really cool one. I like this style where you have one player on Legacy, one on Modern, one on Standard, and you duke it out against the other team's uh, player of that format. Yeah, this is way better than what um, some other of the um, events have been doing. Like, I think Star City like did a Grand Prix at one, or so, like one of the Grand Prix was like Team Unified Modern. That's garbage. Like, <laughs> that is hot garbage. Nobody should be playing that. Like, that's not fun because it doesn't bring innovative innovative decks. It brings okay, what's the most powerful deck that doesn't share the same 75 as what I have? So a lot of people brought Death Shadow, Ad Nauseum, and then, like, Affinity. And then that's it. Like, those are, like, the most powerful decks. Like, yeah, sure, we saw Sam Black playing Titan Post, and we saw some Eggs decks pop up. Those are fun. But you don't see the innovation of the formats you just see oh well you have the same deck as i do well let's try not to touch the same cards and that's not what we want to be doing yeah and it becomes a shell game of like which seed are they putting their death shadow player in so we can put our guy with a good matchup against death shadow there but then you got to figure out where they put it 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 kind of like makes everything a wash in my opinion Um, right exactly so instead you can do one legacy one modern one standard and you can go whatever you want you can play however you want everybody has a chance to win the the rules basically are standard versus standard of course you know modern modern legacy legacy and it's whoever wins the first two uh games overall on the entire team wins so let's say me and carl won well we won it for our team but let's say me and carl lost well we lost it for our team yeah and um it is good because you still get to play uh, best of three against the person you're sitting across from, and then if you lose, you could still win if your two teammates uh, win their best of threes, which uh, you know helps helps shore up uh, those times where you're playing uh, mono red burn and modern or something, and then your opponents on soul sisters and you can't kill them. Like it, it helps shore up bad matchups like that because your teammates could be in good matchups or you know regular matchups and uh, your team still has a chance so it's definitely a lot more fun and also um you're free to communicate throughout the throughout the match so uh, for instance at the event uh, i was on i was our modern player i was on ad nauseum uh, mostly because as i was testing eggs leading up to the event um i couldn't figure out exactly what build i wanted to go with so instead i went with an established uh, good build of a combo deck with uh, Danny's ad nauseum list, and Danny was right there to my left or right every single round to help walk me through a few of the turns. Yeah, and it you did it did very well. I mean, there was a couple of hiccups that uh, you know should not happen, but that mm-hmm. comes with playing the deck over and over and over and over one million times, and you will never forget them. I promise you. But you don't have a million times to play it. You have like twelve. <laughs> yeah, I. I definitely uh, most of our losses uh, I'll take the blame for them because some of them were were my mistakes Um, I made a couple of really big errors one of them being um, I played a turn I played three turn one lotus plumes which would have been great except that I forgot to remove the counter in my second turn 
and because it was a competitive REL, my opponent got to got to choose whether to put them on the stack, and he said no. So uh, I ended up losing because I didn't have the mana on turn four to go off. Right, because you would have had the exact mana because you goblin guided into uh, Murkuro, and your top deck, if you activate Murkuro with the mana floating, was uh, unlife, and you had a nauseam in your hand. Uh, so you would have been able to combo kill right there because you had two, six, seven, eight, nine. You had like nine man to play with. Yeah, everything would have been perfect if I had had that extra nine man of that turn. I would have just been able to go boom, 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 you're dead. And yeah, <laughs> but uh, ugh, yeah, it, it was it was a bit embarrassing because I play yeah. with Lotus Blooms in eggs. So I'm like, how did I miss that? I don't. Uh. You know, it, it it's something that it, it passes you when you're not paying attention. Um, or if you play too quick, you know, if you put too many cards down at once, or if you just go right to your draw step. Uh, for myself, um, I've played so much Death and Taxes that I have just this, like, mental stigma of my upkeep is the most important time, and your upkeep is the most important time for me to do something, so I need to take this opportunity to remember it. And I will say, if you've ever played against me, I'll go on your upkeep or untap upkeep. And I will just go right to my draw step. I allow the opportunity to pass around. A lot of people will go right to their draw step. Yeah, exactly. And and definitely, death and taxes felt really strong. Um, that's that's another thing. I feel that we made the correct decisions for uh, which decks to bring. Danny uh, was our legacy player. He was on death and taxes, which uh, turned out being a pretty good choice. You had some good matchups, and you also had the correct sideboard um, because miracles is. Mostly not there. There's a handful of people trying to still make it a thing with, you know, stuff like Portent and Predict. We can get into that in another episode, but um, there was a lot of Reanimator at that event. A lot of the uh, red-black Reanimator, which is supposed to go really fast, and Mm -hmm. you brought, like, Fairy Macabs and Rest in Pieces and Sanctum Prelates, which all are horrible for that deck to go up against. Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually was on... I actually made the choice of taking out my Pithing Needle and my um, Batter Skull from my sideboard and put in two Fairy Macabs. And the Fairy Macabre actually won me a game. Yeah, I um, saw that. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely Fairy Macabre is just such a great card against Graveyard Strategies. Yeah, and, and it was it was a good time. I, I definitely enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think that maybe I should put Batter Skull back somewhere in the 75. I don't know where yet. It's kind of... It's tough. Yeah, it's a very, very powerful card, but um, it is very tough to play with sometimes. Um, yeah. If you get the perfect line of turn turn two, uh, Stoneforge Mystic, turn three, put Batter Skull into play, yes, it's extremely powerful, but that doesn't always happen. And outside of that, Batter Skull is a little awkward for Death and Taxes to play with. Yeah, it's really good against Delver, um, and it's really good against, like, specific types of decks that run Abrupt Decay and things like that. Um, but, for example, I was playing against Reanimator, so he ran in my Sanctum Prelate, put it on one, which was a mistake, um, and then proceeded to have a blocker. And that's what it was really there for, because I was whittling him down over time. Because he wrathed my board with a, an Elish Norn, and I pathed it eventually. It, it, whatever. Besides that... Um, he put it on one, he went end step, try to entomb, and of course that's not how uh, Sanctum Prelate works. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not allowed to cast non-creature spells. Nobody's allowed to cast non-creature spells of whatever correct amount of cost that was selected, so he made a horrible mistake, and he was very upset. 
uh, but I equipped Jitte and sort of uh, War and Peace and got in there. If that was Batterskull, he would have blocked and then had a reanimation target. So it, it definitely did work out pretty well um, with that. Uh, now, for myself and Ad Nauseam, uh, again, I made some play mistakes, but it was still definitely the correct choice to bring. Um, the opponents that we went up against, um, they knew Ad Nauseam, but it felt like they didn't. They weren't prepared for Ad Nauseam, and uh, some of them didn't really know the correct lines against Ad Nauseam in some turns. Um, so it was in the uh, first round, uh, I was up against a black-white kind of Death and Taxes style deck in Modern, and he had Thought Not Seer and Eldrazi Displacer on board, and he was bouncing the Thought Not Seer and choosing to let me draw the card first, then he would exile a card from my hand. So both Danny and our teammate Dan Baker, uh, they won their games before I could finish mine, but... Uh, because my opponent was allowing me to draw the card, and then he would exile one. Uh, if either of my if either of my other teammates had lost, I actually would have had the perfect three cards to combo off before he could exile a card from my hand. So that would have been a big mistake on my opponent's part. Uh, in another round, um, my opponents just like kept keeping really bad hands in game two against Ad Nauseam. So it was. Uh, Definitely, it was definitely a good choice. Um, not a lot of people were ready for it. And then our th- our uh, teammate Dan Baker, he was on Jeskai Control and Standard, and that ended up being really good. Uh, he went up against a lot of blue red control and against um, some and against an Otherworks Marvel deck. And uh, just like we discussed in our um, in our Hidden Gems episode for Amon Cat, he had a one of Gideon's intervention in his sideboard, which he brought in against Marvel. And he slammed it, named Ulamog, and his opponent could do nothing. There was actually the the turn before Baker won, uh, the opponent was in top deck mode, and he draws Ulamog and just groans because he can't do anything. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Gideon's Intervention is actually just like a super fantastic card for white decks, and more and more people should be playing it in their sideboard. Um, as at least as a one of, I recommend two. I think it's just that powerful to be able to like, oh, I lock you out of the game. Yeah, um, the enchantment hit is definitely very light right now. Um, there are a handful of lists running like one appetite for the unnatural in the sideboard, but most people are relying on dissenters, deliverance, or manglehorns because you're mostly having to deal with vehicles and otherworks marvel itself. So you want to go with the more efficient answers. You can snag an easy win because you're going to win game one most of the time. And then game two, you're just like, oh, intervention, naming Ulamog, good luck. And your opponent's just like, oh, I have no answer to this except for little creatures. And I'm like, all right, cool, I'll just, you know, Dynable Tower your creatures down. Yeah, it's good, <laughs> it's good in the other matchups, too, because against vehicles, a lot of them are slowly getting rid of Fragmentizes, so you can just slam that down. Against, um, against zombies, they really have no way of dealing with it at all unless they're black white and even then I mean they could be using anguish and making but you're forcing them to deal with this permanent off to the side before they can go with their normal game plan so definitely I'm excited to see if we if um, more decks start playing the card we'll see what happens in the future it'll keep moving up now that we're done talking about our own uh, personal exploits in the realm of competitive magic uh, we are going to touch lightly on the 
on some of the events that happened over this past weekend that you may have seen on Twitch or uh, elsewhere. We have two modern Grand Prix happened, one in Copenhagen and one in Kobe, and we also had SCG Baltimore. And these were all modern events. Yeah, a lot of modern this weekend, which is fantastic. More modern, the better. Uh, definitely should be more events. I don't know why Wizards doesn't do that, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, now, first off, we're going to take a quick look at SCG Baltimore, where there's a lot of diversity in the top eight. But one of the most interesting things, and I do not, I personally don't agree with this, the second place deck was a four-color control list uh, piloted by Travis Perley, and it's kind of a little everywhere because it looks like Grixis Control, but then you've got some Lingering Souls, a Sphinx's Revelation, um, sideboard. You've got a Johnny Vengeance and uh, Nahiri the Harbinger and Ruined Halos. Like it's it's a bit all over the place and very it's... very greedy. Right, and that and that that was the word I was looking for. It's just really greedy. Um, is that a bad thing? Oh, hell no. That's actually like a good thing sometimes. If you can spike a tournament by being a super greedy, aggressive deck that is a control deck in some fashion, like just being like, I have all the answers. I know exactly when I need them. I know I need to play them. You're going to win a tournament like that. But of course, you could also be like, okay, I'm dodging one very specific matchup, and you will see them three games in a row, and you will lose. <laughs> It's just a very, very greedy deck, but um, it happened to get there into the finals. Now, it did end up losing in the finals to Blue-White Control, which uh, is just a bit more lean, with uh, more focus on Cryptic Commands and uh, Path to Exiles and using uh, Logic Knot, Think Twice, you know, all these all these cards that you're seeing out of the Blue-White and Esper Control list that show up every so often. So, because this is more net, more... Uh, lean and focused, it's going to have a bit of a better time against Four Color Control, which is built to deal with every deck, but on a lower level than you know some decks can deal with specific ones. Exactly. Uh, one of the other interesting things for out of SG Baltimore is we have a Living End deck that made it to the top eight, and this deck you've. What I like about it is it has uh, two Fairy Macabs in the main board and two in the sideboard. So we were discussing Fairy Macab earlier. It is a 2-2 Fairy Rogue for one black black with flying, but you're mostly playing it because you can discard Fairy Macab to exile two target cards that are in graveyards. A lot of times this is really good against uh, some decks that are former reanimator, like Grizzle Shoal, um, even Living in itself. Um, it's even actually really good against, like, Snapcaster Mage. You're like, okay, I'll snap back Reman. It's like, all right, well, I'll exile that instead. Um, and because it's an activated ability, you don't run any form of non uh, non-activated ability counterspells. So it will resolve, and you'll just get a Ambush Viper. Yeah, no one's running uh, Squelch or Trickbind right now in Modern, so uh, Fairy Macabre pretty much always uh, gets to exile what it wants to. So, yeah, you... Your opponent plays Snapcaster Mage and targets the Cryptic Command in their graveyard, and you go, nope. No flashback for you. Uh, definitely very good, and it synergizes extremely well with Living End, because when Living End resolves, the Fairy Macabs that you have discarded are going to come back onto the battlefield, so you get a couple of free 2-2 flyers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's that's that's good. Having flyers in, in uh, Living End is actually really, really nice. 
yeah, it definitely helps uh, when you end up in one of those states where you're where after you living end your opponent can just kill your big guy, goif, goif, go. Then you still have fairy macabres that can get around the goifs, so it's nice. Mm-hmm. Now, leaving SG Baltimore, uh, we're going to take a look at Grand Prix Copenhagen, where we did see in the top eight um, a Devoted Druid Vizier of Remedies combo deck show up. So it, it's not very much like uh, the one that the one that we built with the Crater Hoof Behemoth and all that, but uh, this is more focused on using Duskwatch Recruiter to filter through your deck for your kill condition. Uh, a lot of lists have been using Walking Ballista, but the one that made the top eight, piloted by Michael Steinecke, was using Ronus the Indomitable. Uh, as its kill condition. So this is the new green god. Uh, we've talked about him before on this podcast, but he's a 5-5 death touch indestructible for 2 and a green. He can't attack or block unless you control another creature with power 4 or greater, and you pay 2 and a green to give another creature plus 2 plus 0 and trample. So with the Devoted Druid Vizier of Remedies combo, you get infinite green mana. You either um, Court of Calling for Ronus, or you uh, have Duskwatch Recruiter out and you filter through your entire deck with Duskwatch Recruiter's activated ability to put Ronus in your hand, play him, activate his ability an arbitrary number of times, and attack with a gigantic power trampler, or a few of them. Yeah, most of the time you'll probably want to do both, like, five, six, you know, like, whatever you can do, as many creatures as you possibly can, and just be like, alright, I have a giant board now, and I will go do my attacks. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I can't beat that. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a very, very hard uh, combo to beat. There are ways around it. Uh, you know, Ad Nauseam does run uh, Darkness and, like, Angel's Grace. So that won't kill somebody exactly right there on the spot. Um, because people do run Holy Day. Like, you'll be surprised. There are Holy Day effects and Fog effects in a lot of people's sideboards because aggression is the answer. I think it's the best way to do something. So Walking Ballista is still a really good choice, I would say. Oh yeah, definitely. Walking Ballista is still very, very good. And one of the ways this deck can get around uh, those Holy Day effects is it does still run the uh, infinite life combo with Kitchen Finks. So that, against most decks, will still win the game. And now we're going to move on to Grand Prix Kobe, where we saw a lot of innovation. And we usually see this sort of stuff out of Japan. The, The players over in Japan are usually more open to experimentation, so we see a lot of crazier stuff coming out of not just their local tournaments, but also their Grand Prix. Yeah, um, for some reason, the Japanese are just absolutely crazy when it comes to their innovation. Um, I.e., Ad Nauseam made the top eight, and somebody's running uh, Godhead of Awe. (laughs) And um, I linked this to a lot of my friends. Uh, Carl first showed me. I was like, what is this? And I started looking into it, and there's a good reason why it's there. Um, yeah. Godhead of Awe is, what, five mana for a 4-4? Blue-white yeah. of any color? Yeah, it's five mana. All of it is hybrid blue-white, so you can pay white-white-white-white-white, blue-blue-blue-blue-blue, or any combination for, yes, as you said, a 4-4 flyer. Yeah, and the main thing is is it makes all other creatures 1-1s. So it beats one of our bad matchups, which is Death Shadow, because what happens is Death Shadow is... a you know, a thirteen thirteen, but it has negative. It has an X uh, life total unless you're at a certain life total. Well, if it's a one one, it automatically dies. So yeah. I can see why people want to play it. Um, it's also really good against like Goyf, um and like Siege Rhino and things like that. Uh, but again, 
it, um, it actually uh, is it actually is pretty bad against Goyf because uh, the Oracle text is that other creatures have base power and toughness one one, so it actually gives oh. the Goyfs one extra point of power. But uh, as you said, against Death Shadow and actually against a lot of other uh, creatures, it's extremely good. It's just uh, Goyfs or anything that has a static effect that boosts its power and toughness doesn't really help you out against. Yeah, no, that makes more sense. Um, but yeah, overall, I mean, like it, it's a cool little tech. Is it good? Eh, that, that's a different story. I don't know if I would call that good. I would call it sweet. <laughs> yeah, definitely sweet. Um, didn't watch any of the, any of the footage of this, uh, mostly because we were preparing for the 3v3, um, but it did take Tomoya Tsubochi to the top eight, uh, probably mostly from just the power of Ad Nauseam as a combo deck, but um, it would be interesting to hear how many Death Shadow decks he went up against and how many of them he resolved a Godhead of Awe against. I don't speak Japanese, so he will not be on the podcast. Yeah, sadly. Uh, I didn't finish my uh, classes I was trying to take on that. But yeah. uh, we're going to move on to the next list from Kobe, and this was a this was an Esper control list uh, piloted by Akio Chiba. And uh, what makes this list very sweet, it has four copies of Glorybound Initiate, uh, which we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. Uh, again, this is a one-in-a-white 3-1 human warrior and you can exert him as he attacks, so he gets plus one, plus three, and gets lifelink. And the deck is playing four Glorybound Initiates because it's also playing four copies of Painful Truths. So, Painful Truths, uh, two and a black uh, with Converge. You draw X cards and lose X life, where X is the number of colors of mana spent to cast Painful Truths. So, uh, you get a lot of draw power at the cost of your life, but the Glorybound Initiates help offset that, and it's it's just really sweet how these play together, especially because he's not playing any copies of Ancestral Vision. Yeah, um, I really like uh, the Painful Truths. Um, I, I found this to be a very, very good card to have, just in general. Um, it will pop up more and more and more in, in Modern, because it's just so powerful. Uh... Will it be there all the time? Not really, but it definitely will pop up more because it's just three mana, draw three cards, three life. Like, that's good value. If you got a Thally on the field, you can do four mana, draw four cards, and four life. Like, that's good. Like, it just progressively gets better. Yeah, it gets gets a lot better as you get a little further into the game. It's three cards immediately instead of Ancestral Vision where uh, you have to wait four turns for for those cards or something. So... Uh, definitely a very strong card that I'm excited to see more uh, Grixis and Esper control decks playing. His removal suite is very diverse uh, because he has access to Fatal Push and Path to Exile, but he's also playing one copy of Devour Flesh. Um, this is an instant for one in a black. Target player sacrifices a creature, then gains life equal to that creature's toughness. And I don't know if um, Akio Chiba used this but uh, one interesting line you can use in this deck, if you need to gain a lot of life immediately, is you attack and exert the Glorybound Initiate. So he's a 4-4 with lifelink. You hit, you hit for 4. Then you devour flesh yourself, sacrificing him and gain another 4. So you can gain 8 life just like that. Yeah, and I'm sure he did it a couple of times. Most of the time, that's for a Death Shadow. Yeah, most of the time you do that against a de- against someone with like a board of just Death Shadows, so it kills all their Death Shadows. But uh, it's definitely an interesting line you can take if you're like, okay, I need to buy just one more turn against Burn. So you just do that. 
Mm-hmm. It's a very, very cool tech. I like it a lot. Yeah, and the last deck we're going to talk about while looking at the GPs, uh, we have an affinity list from GP Kobe, piloted by Takeshi Kagawa, and uh, it's mostly a normal affinity list, except it has one copy of Collected Company in the deck. I have been trying to say that Collected <laughs> Company should be tested in affinity since if Collected Company's come out. People thought I was crazy. They're like, that's a stupid idea. Why would you do that? Uh, then Collected Company became extremely busted. And then people just kind of forgot about it. Uh, I think that this was a test to see how powerful like Collected Company or just Green and Affinity would be. Um, I'm sure it wasn't as powerful as, as, the, uh, as the pilot would have liked. But for what it's worth... It seems like it did pretty well for him. Yeah, I mean, again, we didn't really watch coverage of it, so it's hard to say um, how effective it was in games, but he did make the top eight. Uh, He's not running any green sources except for the normal uh, five-color sources out of Affinity, including your Springleaf Drums, your Mox Opals, and the new Spire of Industry. Uh, But Collector Company is a really good way for Affinity to rebuild. You see a lot of people packing... Uh, artifact hate that destroys artifacts such as Shatterstorm or Shattering Spree or um, in some elves list you've got Fracturing Gust you're seeing in sideboards so Collective Company helps you rebuild after these board wipes which is one of the problems that Affinity has sometimes if you don't have an Ink Moth Nexus on board exactly and, and a lot of times I mean yeah sure you run eight, uh, eight uh, creature lands uh, are you going to get them every time? Uh, I mean, every time I verse one, I see in- infect, but that's not saying that's the average. <laughs> yeah, and uh, definitely with with this deck, I mean, this list that uh, was at GP Kobe, twenty five creatures, all of them able to be hit by Collected Company. That's about where you want to be because you look at the top six, you're going to get you're going to get one hit like ninety five percent of the time, and you're going to get two hits more than fifty percent of the time, which is great. Yeah, and that's a fantastic spot where you want to be. Um, and your creatures are really, really powerful, especially yeah. later in the game, because you've already dumped your hand once or twice. Like, getting one more restock is just enough to kind of push your Arcbound Ravager, uh, you know, to get a massive theorem on the field for lethal. Like, you could do it during combat, things like that, or during a board wipe, you can do something. It, there are there are a lot of things that is possible. Yeah, it's definitely right. I like it. Yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Um, I, I just have to say, I would be super stoked to uh, collect a company and hit, like, Etch Champion Master of Ethereum. Ugh. That would be insane to be just like, oh, that works. Or, like, somebody's like, oh, uh, you know, no blocks. And you're just, like, looking at lethal, and you're just like, oops, got you because Arcbound Ravager. Yeah, exactly. Just the ability for the for this card to not only let you rebuild, but also just propel you to victory. Uh, it's definitely something that might be good to look into in the future for Affinity. Uh, now these last two lists, the Esper Control and the Affinity lists, uh, lead us into the topic for this week, and that is mitigating weaknesses. So uh, the the big thing to realize about deck building, every deck, no matter what it is, has weaknesses. Some of the, Some decks, the weaknesses are not as bad as others, but uh, there's always a weakness to a deck. And a lot of times that has to do with what archetype you are. A lot of control decks lose to 
fast aggression, uh, incredibly resilient threats, or just plain not drawing the right answers. And as we saw with the Esper control list, it's definitely offsetting that with the Glorybound initiates to uh, gain a lot of life, with the diversity of its removal to deal with the resilient threats, and the four painful truths to make sure it draws the correct answers as fast as possible. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, consistency with the deck, too. It, it has a lot of, like, oh, I'm going to do this. It's always going to happen. Or I'm always going to draw this card because it's what needs to be drawn or what have you. It, it There's a lot of consistency, which is the word I said before. Um, and that's a very key factor for decks to propel itself forward. Yeah, now, uh, it, just as with Control... Aggro has its own weaknesses. Uh, aggro definitely loses to uh, slow, to its own slow starts. If your opponent has incredibly hard-to-kill uh, creatures or uh, ways that slow down your aggression, and if, as an aggro deck, you're keen to dump your, dump your hand onto the board, if your opponent board wipes that, it, it's kind of hard to come back. And again, with the affinity list, the collective company helps offset some of those ways of losing it you know, can help you recover from a slow start and it can help you recover from a board wipe. Yeah, and and I don't know how many people actually have played Affinity, but a board wipe against Affinity normally just can see, like, it's an auto-concession. You know, you get Damnation, Wrath of God, something along those lines. Your game is pretty much over. Or, like, hit Fracturing Gust. Uh, yeah, it's... You're in for a real bad time as an Affinity player. Your only out is Infect, and your opponent's like, oh, I have, you know, Pithing Needle. It's a very annoying uh, form of interaction. And the uh, and, and the last major archetype combo, uh, that typically loses a lot to massive hand disruption or just having a back, like a lot of counter spells to fall back on. So that's why with Ad Nauseam, you see 90 percent of lists running multiple Leyline of Sanctities so that they can have that at the beginning of the game or uh, also the main deck Pact of Negations you see in every single list because that will help you fight through any counter spells from your opponent. Exactly. Now definitely the key to mitigating weaknesses, first off, you need to figure out what those weaknesses are so you know how to stop them. Uh Again, if you're in one of those three archetypes, uh, we just listed off a few of the main weaknesses you'll usually see, but when you actually go and play your deck, you will start to notice them. You will realize, okay, most of the time when I'm losing, it's because XYZ happens. You know, let's say you're playing Legacy, and like 75% of your losses are to decks playing Wasteland. Your deck is probably weak to Wasteland, so you should reevaluate and find ways around that. Uh, in the case of Wasteland, maybe play a few basics and prioritize fetching basic lands against a deck that you know will be playing Wastelands, any Delver-style decks. Or if you study the Legacy format, you will start to realize who's playing Wasteland and who isn't, a lot of times just off their turn one play. Yeah, yeah the first turn one play will definitely indicate if they're on Wasteland or not. Um, that comes with experience. Yeah, and, and in every format, you're going to have some cues as to what your deck is weak against. Um, like myself, uh, I've been playing on uh, Magic Online and Standard a uh, retuned 
teamer energy aggro list. I uh, recently took it into a league, into a standard league. I went two and three, and all three of my losses were to Otherworks Marvel. So obviously, I'm very weak to uh, Otherworks Marvel and their Ulamogs, uh, mostly because uh, out of the games I lost to them, four of those six lost games were because of turn four Ulamog. So I need to figure out some way to uh, shore that up, find a way to uh, improve my matchup against the Ulamog, whether that means I should start running uh, sideboard counterspells or whether I should be running uh, ways to disrupt them on their turn four. We'll have to see. Yeah, and there, there's, the best thing to do is play the hell out of it. Just constantly play. That's when you find out that your matchups are either really, really good or really, really bad. And it just takes a long time. It really does. But that kind of just involves like what we were talking about last week, where it's just play it. And you'll find everything. Exactly, yeah. And and one of the big things, uh, with the along with mitigating your weaknesses, uh, definitely... Be willing to run some of your quote sideboard cards in the main deck if it's that big of a weakness. Uh, if you're the sort of deck that folds extremely easily to hand disruption, there's a possibility you should be main decking Leyline of Sanctity. Um, it, it, it's definitely a bit tough and it will hinder your deck in matchups where that's not needed, but if you just always lose game one against hand disruption, it might be necessary. Um, on another hand, life gain against uh, against aggro. If you know you're going into an aggro-heavy meta, and you're running a couple of ways to gain life in the sideboard, maybe run those main board. Uh, just like the Esper control list we talked about, it's running the Glorybound Initiates main board, not only to fuel painful truths, but also to help shore up the aggro matchups. And then, of course, answer cards for any decks that you know are going to show up. If we look at standard, we're seeing a lot of uh, the green-black aggro lists, and a lot of the uh, Etherworks Marvel lists main decking Dissenter's Deliverance because Etherworks Marvel is such a prevalent deck. It is literally everywhere right now. Yeah, when a deck is everywhere, cyborg cards become almost mean portable. And when that starts happening, that's terrifying for the person that's playing the deck. Yeah, it's definitely extremely terrifying when you go up against Etherworks Marvel and you realize, I have absolutely no way of winning this game. It's just like, please let this be over so I can go to sideboard. So to alleviate that, maybe run a few of your answers in the main deck. Now, before we leave you for this week, we do we are going back to having a brew of the week. And this week, we're going to go to Danny, uh, who has for us his new vintage list. So it's really not a brew, but it's definitely... Um something that is being already seen play, which is uh, a landstill style deck. Um, the main thing is I'm running Emrakul, the promise end. Uh, this was something that was discussed uh, for some time um, in the Emrakul deck, uh, in the uh, landstill deck. Is it the best thing to be playing? Eh, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, so uh, definitely th- this is not so much a brew as a n- slightly different take on an established deck. For those who are not familiar with Landstill, it is a deck that plays uh, mostly um, 
creature lands like uh, Mistress Factory or uh, a one of Fairy Conclave in a lot of lists. And then it runs Standstill, which is an enchantment for one and a blue. And whenever a player casts a spell, you sacrifice Standstill. And if you do, each of that player's opponents draws three cards. So the idea is you play Standstill on turn one or two, and then all you're doing is playing lands and beating them in the face with land creatures while they are kind of dissuaded from playing their own creatures or their own removal spells. Otherwise, they give you three cards and you can you know, counter their spell back or draw even more cards or just gain a huge advantage over uh, over your opponent. Yeah, it's it's a really powerful deck. It's so much fun to play. Um, the thing is, is it's a grinder. Uh, you're running like main board moats. You're running Mistress Factories, Fairy Conclaves, um, three mana drains. Of course, some pieces of power being um, Recall, uh, Ancestor Recall, Lotus, Pearl, and Sapphire. Um, <clears throat> they're not... It, it's just about all the same, honestly. Um, but... The main, like the main win con, is Jason Mind Sculptor and Emrakul the uh, uh, Promise Sent. Um, that's kind of where the the power really lies in the deck, and it's super sweet. Yeah, and Emrakul the Promise Sent is definitely extremely powerful and vintage uh, because of just the sheer power level of cards in the format. If Emrakul the Promise Sent just comes down and resolves, you take your opponent's turn, and you just and you can like dump the relevant cards from their hand. Or if your opponent ended up with, like, Ancestral, you can have them Ancestral you, and you now draw three cards on top of whatever other disruption you're doing to their hand. So it's definitely a very uh, very strong way to go about this. Yeah, it's super sweet. Now one thing that I really like with this deck, uh, because the Stancil is an enchantment and it's very likely it's going to get sacrificed, that helps a lot with fueling uh, Emrakul the Promised End, because she's going to cost less the more permanent types that are in your graveyard so it's already easy to get uh sorceries and instants in there um artifacts with black lotus that can get in there or someone destroying your moxin uh planeswalkers because jace is a very strong threat that people are going to want to deal with uh so the standstills help out give you an extra type to get in the graveyard and then mana drain helps out so much as well because mana drain is going to give you so much mana so Mana Drain, it is an instant for blue-blue, you counter-target spell, and then at the beginning of your next main phase, you add an amount of colorless mana to your mana pool equal to that spell's converted mana cost. So extremely strong um, in counter wars, because in those counter wars, you're going to end up with a lot of Force of Wills being thrown back and forth, and then you Mana Drain a Force of Will, you now have an extra 5 mana on your next main phase. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where the power of this deck really does lie is a lot of a lot of little things like that where you're you're trying to play the best draw go control deck you possibly can, and it's it's powerful stuff. It really is. But sometimes you you really have to dig hard in this deck. That's probably one of the big things about this deck. Yeah, and the one thing that doesn't help with that is the fact that Treasure Cruise and Dig Through Time are restricted in the format. Uh, so you're very limited on uh, your draw engines because your powerful draw spells in this deck really are Treasure Cruise, Dig Through Time, and uh, the one of Ancestral Recall. All of them restricted cards. So uh, it is tough to come by cards here, but 
Um, if you can land that standstill, that's going to help out a lot. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I, I really like the standstill deck. It's like turn two play, or like even turn one play, it go, and you're just like land, go, land, go, land, go. And that's just like super satisfying. <laughs> it, it's such a great way to play Magic. I mean, I don't know if it's a great way to play Magic, but it is. It's really fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I find it great. I, I've, I have loved watching Ladstell decks uh, being played. Uh, I, I've, I've even tried multiple times to uh, brew up a Legacy Ladstell deck. Creature lands in Legacy versus Vintage, they're pretty much the same thing being Mistress Factories and the Fairy Conclaves. Um, it just doesn't feel right, and there's better answers in Legacy comparative to uh, Vintage, where people don't really run Bolt. Yeah, in, in Vintage, you, you have a lot of ways around uh, some of the weaknesses, just because, like you said, people just aren't running the right answers. Maybe with the changes in the Legacy metagame, it might be more viable playing a Landstill deck, but it, it's also very likely that it, it still does stone nothing in the format. That is very true. It could just do absolutely garbage. <laughs> uh, but but Landstill right now is actually a very, very good spot. Um, I like it a lot. I think it's very, very powerful. Um, is it, like, top tier? It's a different story. I'm very happy that you're getting into Vintage. Uh, it's going to give us a nice... It's going gonna, it's gonna to give us a good look into the format, because uh, if, if you're actively playing it, we can examine the format a bit more uh maybe if those of you out there listening are interested in some vintage uh we can bring a little bit more of that into the podcast i know we talked about it uh, in past episodes with um one of our guests richard grant but it would be nice to get into it a little bit more in the future it definitely would be uh i definitely like the deck a lot i think it's very very powerful and i hope to keep playing it honestly now uh that does make our episode a little bit short for our standards this week but uh, that is where we're going to end things Uh, make sure that you subscribe to us on soundcloud on youtube all that share it out you know get the information out there about this like i like i've said before youtube i understand is the easiest way for a lot of you to listen that's why we're posting there every single week and as always if you need to get in touch with us you can find us on twitter at whizbrewcast you can email us at wizardsbrewcast at gmail.com danny and i will have our twitters in the description and we'll see you guys next week all right y'all have fun